Today's episode is sponsored by Podcorn, a new online marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing sponsorship opportunities. Podcorn is the ideal marketplace for podcasters seeking to monetize their shows and brands seeking to get their message in front of large and highly engaged audiences. As a podcast host myself, Podcorn has been instrumental in helping to support this show so that I can continue producing it for years to come. Through Podcorn, I've connected directly with brands whose messages can be heard in episodes of the podcast. No matter how large your podcast is, Podcorn will connect you to opportunities right for your audience. If you're a fellow podcaster, click on the link in the description of this episode to start monetizing your show today. And a huge thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. Hello and welcome to the history of Vikings. For nearly 300 years, it seemed there was nothing the Vikings weren't able to do. They raided and pillaged the wealthiest places in Europe, besieging cities such as Paris and Constantinople, and fighting against powerful monarchs like Charlemagne of Francia and Michael III of Byzantium. The Vikings established immense trade networks, stretching across Europe from Baghdad to the British Isles. They settled an island in the Atlantic Ocean called Iceland and created rich oral traditions involving gods like Thor and Odin and characters that one may assume were real people, like the poet Egil Skallagrimsson and the Norse king Ragnar Lothbrok. The outputs I've mentioned compose a mere fraction of the influential accomplishments of the medieval Vikings. Today, we think we know the Viking Age so well, when in fact, most books written about the subject fail to describe the 50% of Scandinavians involved in the era. Women of the Viking Age have always been dramatically overlooked. Until now, that is. My friend, Dr. Johanna Katrin Friedrichsdeuter, is a literary scholar and historian specializing in the Viking Age and medieval period in Scandinavia and Iceland. She works for the National Library of Norway and is the author of a new book titled Valkyrie, The Women of the Viking World. You'll be pleased to know that Bloomsbury, the publisher of this book, is giving away five free copies to listeners of the History of Vikings. To enter the giveaway, all you have to do is text the words Viking Women to the phone number 
1-800-444-444. And five of you listeners will receive Johanna's new book. Again, text Viking Women to 55444, and winners will be contacted two weeks from today. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Johanna about the women of the Viking world. Johanna, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Noah, uh, for the second time. I'm very pleased to come back. Well, I'm so pleased and excited to have you back on the podcast. I know we spoke with you here, I think it was about two years ago, back in 2018, when you were in the process of writing this book, and we've all been eagerly awaiting its publication since then, and now it's finally here. And it's certainly, for lack of a better term, taken the uh, both academic and perhaps even more amateur Viking enthusiast world by storm, which is certainly very exciting to see as well. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. I mean, just the way that it is laid out and the information you present, I feel the reader is is really able to step into the the mind, you know, the, the space sort of between the ears of a, a woman during the Viking Age. And the way that you've written the book is particularly well laid out. I mean, you know, most books about the Viking Age uh, just sort of lay things out in a rather dicursive manner. You know, you might have mythology, archaeology, maybe even something about coinage, daily life. But the table of contents in your book is laid out in such a way that follows the life cycle of a woman during the Viking Age. I mean, from infancy and childhood, teenage girls, adulthood, married life, divorce, uh, widows, old age, death, and and so forth. Um, I guess my first question, there's so many directions that, that we could go with this. How is one, very broadly, for listeners new to sort of this, this time period in, in early medieval history, how is one to understand the experience of a woman during the Viking Age? I'm sure that, that depends upon status and location as well, but I guess I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I I hope I don't imply that uh, everyone's life was the same. Um, but I suppose we, we are really interested in the Viking Age because it's um, so dynamic and it's kind of an age where things are different in many ways to the way they were before and after. Um, and it kind of, it's a period where there's a lot of, um, kind of ability to maybe move around and um, change your life. And, um, you know, for, for women, um, they might have, you know, maybe many of them were actually left at home um, taking care of the farm and the family while the man was away, which maybe was a little different from, as I say, the periods before and after. But um, we also know that, you know, judging from archaeological finds and textual sources, that women were going all over the place um, from Scandinavia and, you know, to England and Scotland and Ireland and then further away um, west, you know, and going to Iceland and settling there and and eventually Greenland and even North America, and um, similarly going going east. Um, so it's such a an exciting period in many ways, and there's also the kind of economic changes that happen, and there's maybe more ch- of a chance to increase your income, like have side incomes and so on. 
so so yeah i thought um sort of being able to kind of discuss you know how ordinary life would have been but also the kind of more unusual aspects um and trying to synthesize it all into one book it's, it was a challenge but it's been really um fun and enjoyable to write certainly and and i'm very glad you did write it as well um there's such a plethora of sources that you draw upon um, throughout your book. I mean, everything from, you know, the sagas to archaeology, as you mentioned. Is there a particular source or a particular series of sources, maybe a handful, that you found particularly interesting? Uh, just little tidbits of information, if you will, that can sort of give us a glimpse into the the female experience during the Viking Age. Well, um, I mean, I guess I've been reading sagas and poetry since I was a teenager. So there wasn't maybe a huge amount that was new to me, I guess, reading up on the archaeology and the runology and stuff that kind of put a lot of things into a new perspective for me. Um, but I would say that I found the rune stones particularly interesting, maybe because they are standing there, like in nature and in just you know a space where you can access them um and you just have this direct connection to people who were living a thousand years ago and i found it so astonishing um and i mean i guess you could compare rune stones to um putting up a statue maybe like in a public square or something and so you know that a woman would have commissioned and paid for um you know, a stone, like a huge, they're often very tall, like sometimes they're taller than the average, you know, human. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, and then, so you would have like maybe had to source the stone from somewhere, not just nearby, but a little further and drag it to where you put it up because they usually put them up somewhere near crossroads or like bridges or somewhere where um, people would have been coming by. And then, you know, having inscriptions put up on the stone or carved into the stone, making some sort of statement. And then there's sometimes some art, um, some, some depictions of mythological scenes or something. And so I just found that really, really interesting because I guess like because we can go and see them now. Whereas, you know, when you read about some of the graves or something like they've all been excavated so you can't really go anywhere and see them yeah that's that's absolutely fascinating yeah runology is is certainly a uh, an exciting medium to explore the sort of history of these these people um transitioning from the world of the living in Scandinavia and Iceland to the more mythological understanding which uh certain scholars have suggested was very much a part of the world of the living, certainly in the minds of the Scandinavians and Icelanders. Um, how do how how should one understand women in you know Nordic mythology? I mean, you know, there's all sorts of interesting figures that come to mind. I mean, you know, the Norns who weave you know men's fate. There's the Valkyries, of course, the title of your book, um, and then there's also goddesses. Most notably, perhaps Freya, whom some have suggested has a, a, a serious connection to the afterlife as well. Um, I don't know. I guess how does 
how do Viking women relate to the vast world of uh, the supernatural in you know the in medieval Scandinavia? Yeah, I I think it's really um, interesting and maybe not um, always acknowledged just how much you know the the kind of the feminine is everywhere in the mythology and so powerful because you know we're so interested in these stories about Odin and Thor that are told you know in Snorri's Edda and some of the Eddic poetry and I mean they they're told so well and of course they're they're very exciting um, and then I guess when I I started sort of teaching and I was reading more and more about mythology um, and then interacting with the students and and like you know, the students sort of approach the material with much fresher eyes than I do. And they yeah. would often, you know, sort of ask questions like, oh, but, you know, all of the Valkyries and all of the Norns and, and you know, all of these beings that are kind of controlling everything and um, deciding who dies and, um, you know, shaping each person's fate, they're all feminine. And why is that? And you, you would just kind of be... Yeah, they are, <laughs> you know, um, and, and sort of just trying to get maybe away from the sort of Odin-centric, Thor-centric uh, view of the mythology. That was um, something that I, in some ways, I had to unlearn just, you know, having kind of always as a child and teenager, like learned the mythology the sort of old way. Um, yeah, and then if if we just kind of, try to get a little bit away from Snorri sometimes. And, um, you know, he he wasn't always maybe, um, didn't always have all of the information or he's trying to make sense of like contradictory information or something. So I kind of, in in the book and, and when I was teaching, I just tried to re- remove myself a little bit away from that and just approach like the myths and the poetry um, from a, from a more neutral perspective in a way, like just try to forget about what he says. Um, and then I guess that made me think, um, you know, there is this line in, in Grimnir's Maul, the, the lay of Grimnir, where it says that Freya gets half of the slain and Odin gets half of the slain. Um, and that just, you know, made me think, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and there are all these kind of, sources that that um you know the the myth about the giant Rungnir coming to Ausgard and Thor is away and um, all the gods are kind of scared and they they don't really know how to deal with him and he's getting um kind of angry and then Freya is the only one who dares to kind of interact with him and she's trying to just diffuse the situation um buying time you know until Thor comes and can can um deal with them basically and yeah you know just kind of trying to get away from from the cliches made me sort of start seeing Freya as maybe a more like assertive and powerful figure rather than you know the sort of taking taking Snorri at face value saying she's a goddess of love poetry or something like that um because you know there aren't really any myths about it and so if we just like analyze the myths um i sort of started to think that maybe um freya was much much more like not just important but seen 
as sort of maybe are inspiring, powerful, assertive, dominating um, than, you know, a fertility goddess or something like that. Um, and especially the kind of link with war, you know, getting half of the slain um, and a possible sort of connection with Valkyries and Desit, um, who are these figures as well, these um, mythological female beings that we don't really know very much about the Desit, but um, there are some myths that say that they also come and take people when it's their time to die. Um, so they seem very similar to the Valkyries. And Freya is referred to as Valmatis. Um, and then there's this tapestry in the Oseberg ship where there are these figures um, who look, you know, like women, like they, they're wearing the kind of typical trailing dresses that women are often or seem to be represented with um, on, you know, Viking, in Viking iconography. And then they're holding spears. Um, and then there's this one bigger female character on some of the, on the Oseberg tapestry. And, you know, in the Oseberg grave, um, which is this, this grave of these two women, and it's like one of the richest graves ever made um, in Viking Age Scandinavia. And there is this like cart there with all these cats. Um, carved into it, and the cats are like Freya. Freya is supposed to have a wagon, like with two cats, <laughs> in which she travels. Um, and so, you know, there's just like there's no explicit information that we have, but if we just um, kind of analyze the myths and then connect it to this iconography, you just sort of get the feeling that Freya and these like supernatural female beings that you know they're controlling so much of the sort of things that are really beyond human control, like life and death. Um, so it just makes you wonder whether they didn't have, you know, quite a high status um, in the belief system hmm. that maybe, ha you know, has in some ways been lost or is inaccessible to us. Right. Um, it, it's certainly such a fascinating aspect of, of Norse mythology. I mean, it, it's Norse myth is just so ripe with female characters and indeed female characters that play a large role. I mean, I guess just within the functioning of the universe as well as deciding warriors and other human mm. beings' fate as well. Um, a lot of people are particularly excited about Valkyries. Uh, I mentioned them briefly earlier. The um, sort of you know female fate figures that mm -hmm. uh, decide decide the fate of those slain in battle and you know bring them to uh, Odin's hall in Asgard. Uh, would you like to talk about them a little bit? What do you find as an expert in Norse literature? What do you find particularly interesting about them and, and their relation to uh, the female experience during the Viking Age? I think um, one of the first things that, you know, when I started studying Valkyries more and, and reading more poetry, I didn't, um, I think maybe what was most surprising was just how scary and kind of unpleasant and horrible they can be <laughs> in some <laughs> Like there is this poem, Daralalio, um, uh, in the Al Saga, where they are weaving. <laughs> 
and they are using guts for their yarn and, you know, spears and arrows. And um, it's just really gross, that poem. There's just like blood splattering on the floor. And it's, it's really, um, it doesn't really agree with, you know, the kind of cliched image of the Valkyrie as being quite glamorous and, and sort of, you know, one of Odin's girls and probably serving ale in the hall. Um, to the the Ain Periyav, you know, the fallen warriors. Um, so that I think was um, one of the things that I wanted to, you know, highlight more to readers that um, in the kind of older sources, the old Skaldic poetry and so on, the the Valkyrie is really um, powerful and not very nice. Um, sometimes she's she's not you know unpleasant or anything, um, but What's very clear in the Norse poetry is that the Valkyries are deciding how the battle goes. So in some ways, it um, it isn't really up to how good of a fighter you are. Um, it you know just your personal survival and the way that the battle goes for the whole um, you know team. It, that just depends on what the Valkyrie is feeling uh, or what, what she decides. Um, and so the the sort of agency. Um, of the Valkyrie uh, over these warriors and like how how they are fighting, I, I think that was something that I I wanted to make more clear to readers and um, and then sort of go behind that and and try to interrogate a little bit like what would the purpose be to kind of have this figure in the culture like why was she so prominent and so powerful and what does that tell us about the Vikings and you know the way they fought. Um, and I think there's like several aspects to them. And there's this sort of, if you think about it from the top down, um, and you're a Viking king and you want to strengthen your position, right? So, um, how are you going to do that? How are you going to get lots of men to fight for you? Um, well, you give them gifts, um, and then you can give them royal titles, but, um, you also have to have like a sort of more military ideology and you have to cultivate that quite strongly and so you have these poets in your employment um who are kind of like your pr guys um (laughs) and then they compose all these poems you know glorifying death in battle and and then when you die you get to um that's the valkyrie who who decides that and and she comes and takes you away and takes you to odin um it, it kind of makes sense from the sort of dominant point of view um if you're if you're gonna kind of get people to buy into you know war which is a big aspect of the viking age i guess um and then what's really interesting is that um the the valkyries they often have these like um names that are kind of connected to battle but they are also referred to with um, words like spear girl or spear maiden or something and so the kind of you know given that they decide who lives and dies um you also wonder whether all the spear language and the kind of you know decision making whether that's a way to rationalize just like why did you know my my friend die but i didn't die um and you wonder whether it's the the valkyries who are sort of directing the spears that are falling from the sky um, into one and not the other warrior. And it's somehow kind of easier to 
you know, live with the fact that it was a Valkyrie who decided like a, a higher being rather than um, it just being a random thing. So that was sort of one of the things that I wanted to explore a bit. And then I also, I also talked about how the Valkyrie figure sort of becomes with some poets. I mean, they, they don't really imagine Valkyries as sort of scary and bloodthirsty as some of the others. <laughs> and so they, they kind of take it um, in a softer direction. And, you know, sometimes they're very beautiful and they are sort of sexually alluring and, and also attracted to the heroes. And so they kind of become this more glamorous figure. Um, and, you know, you wonder whether that was a, some sort of response towards like having to kind of decide between, you know, hanging out with all these warriors and just living that life, being in the war band, um, which is mostly, you know, other men um, or being a sort of, you know, farmer, <laughs> having a family, having your wife and like having to kind of choose between that in some ways. And so maybe the Valkyrie sort of in some ways like makes up for the fact that, um, you know, you live the, the warrior life. Well, you know, you mentioned skaldic poets and, and court poets as well. I mean, th that's sort of a, um, a job title existing in a way between the world of the supernatural and the living. These are people who, you know, of course, were the, the PR people of the chieftains and kings of, of medieval Scandinavia, but these are also people who had a very deep knowledge and understanding of the mythology and mm -hmm. the what is now Eddic poetry so that they could use it to create these kinnings and in beautiful, complicated skaldic verse um, referencing and sort of hinting at various aspects of Norse myth. Do we see women occupying any sort of jobs in that vicinity? Were there female poets during the Viking Age? There seem to have been a few, actually. I mean, mostly this was a very kind of uh, male-dominated sphere because, um, you know, you needed a lot of training uh, in, in this sort of poetry. You needed, you know, knowledge, basically. You had to go to, like, school, poetry school. Um <laughs> So, I mean, I, th I think like most girls were probably not given that sort of training and they were prepared for a different life. But um, there are a few poems that are attributed to women. And there's, um, for example, there's one called Jorun. And there's a poem about um, like a sort of dispute between a king and his son that she composed and has been preserved. And um, it's Experts in skaldic poetry, you know, they assess that poem as a very excellent, you know, well-crafted poem. So, I mean, there's nothing that precluded women from being able to, you know, be competent at good poets. Um, but it was probably more of a question of the barriers that they had to face. But there's like, there's also a few other names that have been preserved. And like a, a few female characters are like attributed with poetry um, in some of the sagas, but um, it's sort of impossible to ascertain, you know, whether any of this is actually true. <laughs> right, on the other right. Hand. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, at least, you know, saga authors seem to think that, that it was, you know, completely possible for women to compose skaldic verse. That's really interesting. And one other aspect of 
sort of the mythology that I'm curious about are, um, you know, in various grave finds, there has been evidence of this. Um, do we see women in Viking Age society having any particular connection? And of course, not women as a whole, but women would certainly occupy these sort of job positions um, of being sort of these female shamanistic, I mean, for lack of a better term, witches, people dealing with um, various aspects of, of, you know, spiritualism. Um, you know, there's all sorts of staffs that I know were found. Do we see any of that in the Viking Age? Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, it's again the the sort of the problem when you have stuff in graves that doesn't really um, always make a lot of sense. I mean, people have often been mystified by like all kinds of different objects, but the 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 female graves where there's a staff or I mean, sometimes it's a stick made out of wood or um, often iron. And some of them, um, you know, it's sort of ex- easy to explain what they would have been used for. But others um, don't really, there doesn't really seem to be any kind of practical purpose that you could possibly find. I mean, like as a roasting spit or um, yeah. measuring stick or something. Um, so archaeologists have wanted to interpret them as um, symbols for sorceresses or they sometimes are called magic practitioners um, just to make it a little bit more neutral. Um, And, you know, it's, it's um, quite reasonable that there was something of a role like that, considering that the the sagas um, have representations of women as being sort of prophetesses. And I mean, they, um, obviously, the, you sort of run into the problem where there's 250, 300 years between, you know, the adoption of Christianity and the saga being written. And um, when you have a Christian writing, you know, about pagan times, you can't always rely on what they say is true, um, even though we re- rely on the sagas for some other information such as just the way that, you know, society functioned on the whole. But, um, but yeah, like the, the, the thing about um, the way that these sorceresses or, or magic women were represented in the sagas that they, a couple of them um, seem to have like a staff or something. And then they're called Völva um, or Völur. And um, the, the, the Völur, the etymology is often related to staff, the word staff, and so that you know they would be called after the staff that they were holding. Um, so it's quite possible that this role existed. But on the other hand, you know some others want to be more careful and say that this stick or staff or whatever it was might have just been a symbol of authority um, and you know having some sort of higher status. Um, much like a you know kings hold scepters, so it's it's sort of difficult to know. But there's a famous grave in Fyrkat in Denmark where a woman has a staff like this, but then also um, she had all kinds of, um, of medicine. It seems like, including there was one substance that um, she had, which was apparently sort of able to induce um, hallucinations. But um, yeah, but like we don't really know whether 
she would have been perceived as a, a sorceress or maybe just a doctor or, you know, mm-hmm. so she might've just been trying to heal people. Um, and it's, it's really difficult to kind of gauge from a grave, you know, where you don't have labels on anything. Um, mm-hmm. what, what this was intended as. So it's an ongoing discussion. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the most fascinating aspects of the Viking world, uh, Norse mythology, I guess everything between, is the way in which the people of the Viking Age understood the supernatural and viewed the gods because scholarship now suggests that it is far more complicated than just, you know, a pantheon of Norse gods. Mm. You know, you might pray to Odin for this and Thor to that. Um, it, it was very much localized, very much something that was ever present uh, in the minds of the people who lived in Scandinavia and Iceland. Obviously, women make up half the population during the Viking Age, just as well as now. Um, is there anything that, you know, you as sort of an expert on Norse myth and, and Old Norse literature, any insight you could provide as to how perhaps any particular elements of the supernatural or what is today known as Norse mythology, how women might have related to certain elements of that. I know because if if you're a um like let's say if you're a lay person, you're a farmer in medieval mm. Iceland, you know, the god Thor would probably be of great interest to you. But if you're a woman, you know, would you also be interested in Thor? I mean, after all, your sort of uh daily work is existing in an entirely different threshold for the most part. I mean yes and no. I think I mean for everyone, um you know, they would be hoping for a good harvest and, um, you know, good catch of fish and that sort of thing just to uh, sort of feed themselves. Um, there are some references to women like praying to Frigg and Freya. Um, and you don't really know whether this is just something that like later medieval authors are kind of just making up or, or not making up, but sort of imagining that women would have done but um but i think certainly like when i was talking about how freya is maybe like more assertive and um determined and dominating than we think i mean at least if you're the lady of the house even if you have just like a small or average sized farm in iceland or somewhere um a lot of um your life just depends on having to be really tough and um and you had a certain amount of authority i mean there is this sort of classic distinction within the threshold which has come to be you know complicated a lot in more recent scholarship where women's authority is certainly over like the the more domestic affairs but then um some sources suggest that they might have kind of been representing their husband, you know, if he was away or sick or something like that. Um, so, you know, the, the women also have to have a sort of more public-facing, um, you know, image maybe. And so it's not kind of impossible to imagine that they would have maybe prayed to, to different goddesses for different things. But certainly um, things like childbirth and um, just survival. Um, they probably had different ideas about 
Frigg and Freya maybe and the other goddesses than um, than we really understand. And I think that's probably because their perspective hasn't really been um, preserved very well, if at all. Um, I think maybe the closest thing that we get to it is that um, in sort of the very late Viking Age, um, people have been converting to Christianity more and more. And um, in the runestone inscriptions, um, all these women who raise runestones in memory of someone, they usually like um, pray to Mary, the Virgin Mary, that this person will be, um, you know, saved. Their soul will be saved. And so that's suggested to scholars that, you know, the, the worship of um, Frick and Freya and goddesses was um, much stronger than we real, realize because, you know, people like Snorri aren't very <laughs> interested in goddesses. Um, I mean, Snorri is excited about uh, Odin mostly. Um, and, you know, he wouldn't have been preserving a lot of myths that are female-centered. Although he is interested in Frigg and her going around, you know, asking all of the um, all of the different, you know, plants and everything to not harm Baldur. So I guess um, this sort of ma- maternal image there, um, he, he, he finds appealing. Yeah, it's certainly very interesting. And um, related to, I suppose, Snorri's homeland in a way, um, you know, Iceland was very much the new world of the Viking Age. And just the exceptionality of Iceland during the Viking Age is something that has fascinated me as well. I mean, how this, this island it was able to produce such a vast, um, the saga tradition, such a vast canon of literature mm. um, is absolutely fascinating to me and something I've talked a great deal about on this podcast with with various scholars. Um, there's quite a quite a number of women that come to mind. I mean, perhaps Odd the Deep-Minded uh, mm. of Laxdella Saga is, is one that people get really excited about. Um, dealing with the discovery and settlement of Iceland, um, are there certain women, I mean, I've hinted at at Aud, but perhaps maybe for novice listeners, are, are there any women there that you find um, really interesting? Yeah, I mean, Aud is amazing in so many ways because, um, I mean, in, in some ways she's such a contradiction in terms because she um, starts off being this quite, you know, elite, high-status woman in Scotland. She's married to the King of Dublin, but they seem to have some kind of, you know, trouble, troubled marriage. So um, we don't really know exactly how that all went, but she has this family in Scotland and then there's kind of an outbreak of civil war there, or at least it's very turbulent. And so she decides to leave and takes a lot of followers with her and all of her um, children and grandchildren, it seems, or, or a, lot, a lot of them. and. Um, goes to Iceland, uh, settles down there and becomes a sort of matriarch and um, has a very illustrious life and, and so on. Um, but then um, what a lot of people, sort of, you know, what often surprises people is, is, for example, that on the way to Iceland, she stops in Orkney and the Faroe Islands. And then the saga kind of just says, oh, and there she married off one of her granddaughters. And then she marries 
so she marries like two of her granddaughters um, off and it's sort of just a very much kind of comment in passing um, but she's essentially sort of just behaving like a Viking age chieftain um, who happens to be a woman <laughs> and um, the, the sagas I mean the, there seems to be this this sort of collective memory of her um, so she's turning up in several different sources and a lot of them kind of have the same information and so we don't really know if the saga authors are working from you know local collective stories um or if there's like some written source that's lost that they all base um their their um their own writings on um but um they sort of they all agree that she was this extremely tough woman who was very you know highly respected by everyone else including you know her her grandchildren, like she has a grandson. Um, and at the end of like Stella Saga, she kind of orders him to marry and like she she pretty much arranges the marriage and then she um dies after the wedding and it sort of there's a sense that she feels like, okay, I can die now, like I've ensured the continuity of my my lineage. Mm-hmm. Um and she I mean she's really well characterized you know we have a lot of sources about her but then there if you read um the book of settlements for example called landnamabok in icelandic or old norse um i wrote about a few of the kind of less well-known women in the book um settler women and some of them you know the the way that they're written about is like very sort of, they seem to have become independent settler women, not necessarily because they chose to be um, alone, but um, like one of their um, one of these women, like her husband dies on the way to Iceland, and she just has to go and you know take her family and settle all alone. And then another one is about to set off um, from Norway, and then uh, with her husband, and then the king's um, thugs come and kill her husband like right before they get on the boat and so she just has to go um, and sort of run for her life basically um, but then there's a few uh, a few other women who are sort of more folkloric figures and I talked about one of them called Gerilid and um, there's this story about her coming to Iceland and her um, brother Bjorn I think he was named gives her a plot of land and she builds a, a house there and she kind of builds it right by the road that everybody has to take past her farm. And um, she has this habit of sitting outside her farm and trying to lure people into it with, um, a, a, yeah. So with a, with a table full of food and, um, and then there's this woman in the West fjords of Iceland, which is this kind of, to me, very like remote, very beautiful, but quite harsh landscape. Um, and so she set, settles in a place called Bolungarvik, and um, and she is able to um, fill. Her name is Thuridur Suntafitlir, uh, so Thuridur the fjord filler, and so she's able to fill the fjord with fish, and so. Um, she kind of takes payment in the form of sheep 
for rendering these services so that people can go out and, and get some food. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's the sort of more myst- mystical aura <laughs> surrounding these women, and um, they might not be based on anything very real, but certainly the sort of people writing this stuff down in, in the 13th century didn't think it was inconceivable that uh, women, for one reason or another, would have settled on their own. Right. In the Viking Ages, I mean, Iceland and, and not least Scandinavia, is in a very dynamic political state. You know, um, I mean, politics during that time was probably a rotating door of chieftains mustering Absolutely. forces, making yeah. alliances. So the fact that, as you mentioned, um, Aud, you know, marries off her granddaughters, I mean, that's a, a very notable power move that should should be treated as such. Well, Johanna, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. I've been looking yeah, forward to this for some time. Um I'll certainly put a link in the description for everyone listening of this episode to your book, Valkyrie, oh, The you. Women of the Viking World. Um absolutely. Well Johanna, thanks again for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Noah. I loved coming. Thank you for listening to the history of Vikings. Remember, you can enter to win a copy of Johanna's new book, Valkyrie, The Women of the Viking World, by texting the words Viking Women to the phone number 55444. Thank you so much again for listening. Join us here for another episode next week. 